Hello, and welcome to the Whiskey Rebels. The only podcast about alcohol where the hosts aren't getting drunk. Uh, I'm Drew Brackbill. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And we're here to talk to you today about the economic, philosophical, and regulatory history of alcohol. And we care a lot about booze, but they wouldn't let us drink it in the recording studio. So here we are. We're going to have a uh, balanced, sober discussion of how various societies have treated alcohol and uh, have tried to account for its widespread use and the successes and failures of various government policies which have related to it. And we think this is a pretty important topic um, because booze, frankly, it's hugely influential in human culture and it's had a pretty profound impact on the felt experiences of basically every human all down through history with very few exceptions. And it's had a, a huge impact on the American founding in particular too. Well, that's why our topic today is the Whiskey Rebellion because uh, this is like a little known part of history people know the name but they don't know that it was really just a bunch of people in like slightly west of pittsburgh protesting against taxes so it's a fascinating um fascinating part of alcohol culture a fascinating part of about sort of the american government history and the history of the federal government in the united states and uh we're excited to talk to you about it so before we get started though uh we spelled it with an e-y but like what isn't whiskey also sometimes spelled with just a Y? What's the difference? Is so there a difference? It's basically kind of a national distinction. Um, the Y spelling, what the Y loan spelling, kind of originated in Scotland. It's also prominent in Canada and Japan. Mm. Uh, the Wait, e- the Japanese make whiskey? They do. Apparently. <laughs> is, it, have you guys, is it good? I, have, I haven't had it. Uh, I no. would like to. All sure. right. Well. Um, and the, the, y, sorry, the EY spelling originated in uh, Ireland. And those the Irish immigrants to America sort of brought it over to America, popularized it here as well. I, I just want to make a quick note to the listeners here: if you notice any abrupt uh, edits, that's because a Drew's a terrible person, and b <laughs> I'm kind of bad at editing. Carrying on. Okay, so we know whiskey and whiskey. That is, there's not a difference saying that. I don't know why I did that. Um, so, but what about bourbon? Because like that's a thing too. Right. So bourbon has to be made in the United States. That's one of its biggest things. So there's no Canadian bourbons. You can't have a Canadian bourbon. You can't have a Japanese bourbon. You can only have American bourbon. It's Kentucky. Like it's just it's specific to Kentucky. Primarily made in Kentucky. Correct. Okay. It came out of Bourbon County, Kentucky. That's what. OK. Yeah. Two of the other requirements that are actually regulations by the ATF. It's crazy that there's actually regulations. There's actually regulations on this stuff. So the other two main regulations is that it has to be made with a grain mixture that is at least 51% corn. So it has to be primarily corn and (laughs) Americans and their just odd love for corn. (laughs) We love corn. It's a great crop. Yeah. It's really solid It's very, it's it's hard to digest, but really also highly subsidized (laughs) by the USDA. Uh. And finally, it has to be aged in new charred oak containers. So both new and charred. If it's neither of those, it's not bourbon it's whiskey and like other whiskeys it has to be bottled at at least 80 proof uh, or more which is 40 percent alcohol and then it, so does it go up or down in it typically it goes up in proof during the aging process correct right yeah as the water evaporates into the barrels and stuff. Right. i think that's how whiskey aging works i'm not a master distiller uh yeah we're historians I mean, what, not why, distillers. Why we have an we're barely on alcohol if we're gonna do a podcast we're, about alcohol and we're barely history. historians so like, <laughs> we're pretend historians <laughs> we're just uh, booze enthusiasts I, I i could put that on my resume booze enthusiast um all right so so now that we have some points of background it's it also bears mentioning that whiskey and i guess bourbon because it was made in kentucky at the time uh and distilled spirits in general were very very highly consumed especially in the frontier regions of the uh, american 
colonies. And whiskey, while not the only distilled spirit, was the most common. And uh, it was actually hugely important. I say hugely a lot, but it was extremely important to the early history of the, the Western regions of colonial and post-colonial America. So there's kind of a pragmatic angle to like making whiskey, right? In sort of in terms of like transporting grain. Yeah, we're going to get to that. But first, a brief point of definition uh, when we talk about the Whiskey Rebellion, for those who aren't familiar. The Whiskey Rebellion uh, was a conflict which occurred during the Washington administration in 1791, and it ended in 1794. Washington ended it. Uh, and it occurred because the newly minted federal government had levied a tax on all distilled spirits, including whiskey, which was, as I said, the most common at the time. And farmers in the frontier regions of the country, especially western PA, and yes, at the time, Pittsburgh was the western frontier. Think about that one. I mean, it's still barely civilization. Okay, as it is. all right, that's hurtful. Uh, <laughs> but people in, especially in western Pennsylvania, took umbrage on the federal tax that was being leveraged on them, and they rose in revolt these farmers mostly it was just small-time farmers and small-time distillers had historically been accustomed to distilling their own rye whiskeys and and such from leftover grain and they felt the tax was unfairly targeting them as small-time producers and consumers uh, of spirits and like josh said whiskey had a very important economic role in the early united states because it was a, a medium of exchange in many locations so yeah, whiskey was actually like, super important in the early like U.S. history. Uh, it was sort of a medium of exchange uh, in a lot of locations, just because federal currency was pretty scarce. Uh, so farmers would sort of just distill their own like grain alcohols, you know, like whiskey, because uh, it was a lot easier to carry that um, than it would be to carry the grain itself. Especially like if you've ever been, if you've ever like had to drive across like PA, yeah. like, it is just super mountainous, like just, uh, just in mountains. places. Yeah, in, in places, yeah, um, which is beautiful, but also a massive pain. So when the when the Washington government put an excise tax tax on uh, whiskey, what they were basically doing is putting an income tax on like these poor Western laborers that were paid in whiskey. Uh, so this was a tax which those in the East who mostly use currency as money or who just didn't have to deal with the Appalachians that like they didn't have to pay. So it was kind of seen as like Western Pennsylvanians as like this sort of like excessive like unfair burden specifically uh, targeting them. Yeah, and, and this was at a time when like income tax would have been completely unheard of. And that's actually another thing we're going to explore more in this podcast, like the degree to which federal power has grown in the years since the founding of our country. Like you look at this and it's a time when people literally rose up in rebellion over an income tax of like, I think tops like six cents per gallon on whiskey. Um, yeah, we kind of take the income tax for uh, we take the income tax for granted. Yeah, for granted. Um, but it was actually not even constitutional until 1913 when we had a constitutional amendment allowing for an income, tax. allowing for an income. Yeah. tax. And so these people, I mean, arguably they they had a justifiable reason. Uh, to be upset. And there were uh, lots of other controversial elements of the tax. For one, it was it was very regressive, and that was intentional. Like, um, small-scale farmers also protested that Hamilton's excise tax like effectively gave unfair tax breaks to large distillers, most of whom were based in the East, uh, because there were two methods of paying the tax. You could pay a flat fee or pay by the gallon, and uh, large distillers produced whiskey in such large volumes uh, that they could afford to pay the flat fee, and the more efficient they became, the less tax per gallon they paid, as low as like six cents, according to Hamilton. 
but Western farmers who owned small stills usually didn't operate them year-round at full capacity, and so they ended up paying the higher tax per gallon, which was like nine cents, uh, which made them less competitive. And like three cents doesn't sound like a lot to us because we barely even conceive of cents as units of money anymore. Like I think. <laughs> if I dropped anything like less than a quarter on the ground, like the energy spent to pick it up would not be worth it. Like that's just like, yeah. that's just, that that that's its new home. Like it lives there now. You it's, could it's yeah. you could like they've done studies. You could like throw pennies on the ground and people like won't won't pick them. Why would I mean, they? It's it a might penny. as well have just like dropped into a void. Like it's yeah. just not. That's another thing. I mean, to be honest, that's the main reason I don't pay with cash anymore. Is because if I get change, I just forgot about yeah, it. Yeah, like what do you do with that? You've basically just lost like half of a dollar on that transaction. Yeah, you're I mean, gonna put that in your pocket and exactly. never use it again. Exactly. But at the time, at the time of the whiskey rebellion, getting back on topic. Yeah, at, at the time, three cents was actually like a considerable amount of money when you considered that, uh, like the average profit made on all whiskey distillation in a year was, I think. Um, about four hundred and sixty dollars that that would be like the average distillery's yearly profit so if you're paying six gallon or six cents uh nine cents if you're a small distillery a gallon on profits that small that's actually taking a pretty big chunk out of your total income so but of course if we think of what hamilton was trying to do early in the american founding this kind of made sense right yeah he wasn't. He didn't really care about the small guy. In fact, he was probably trying to get rid of the small guy because efficient industry was the way to prop up an economy. Or because right? his friends were running the efficient distilleries, and the right. man was like a noted crony capitalist. I think what's kind of hilarious is like I think our modern conception of him, like thanks mostly to like the Hamilton musical. Thanks, is, Lin Manuel. Is he's he's just this you know he's this, this hero of the common people. And, like, Firebrand who cares you know, about he justice. Is, he is all about that big business. Yeah, he was actually. I mean, I I think Hamilton is a complex historical figure and this podcast is not going to this specific episode isn't going to paint him in a great light because he did kind of screw over like people in western pennsylvania to the degree that they rose up in rebellion and some historians think he did that on purpose just to be a kind of a b-hole uh, <laughs> we can keep b-hole in there can't we? what <laughs> just to be a big old big old butthead um and a tyrant but in general, Hamilton is a complex figure, and that's that's not really the, the focus of the the podcast. But it's definitely something. If you're listening to this because you like Alexander Hamilton, I'm sorry. Um, but but you need to get your facts. Yeah, straight. the dude was not. He was not great. He was not a great dude. He wasn't like an. Ah, he was pretty awful. He was a pretty awful dude. But we're gonna try to get back on, yeah, on track. Anyway, here. Uh, <laughs> another reason why people were so pissed off about this whiskey tax that was all Hamilton's idea was because whiskey sold for considerably less in the cash-poor western frontier than it did in the wealthier and generally more populous east. And that meant that even if all the distillers had been required to pay the same amount of tax per gallon, the small-scale frontier distillers would still have to give up a considerably bigger portion of their product's value than larger eastern distillers because they weren't making as much money off of it. So small-scale distillers believed that Hamilton deliberately designed the tax to ruin them and promote big business, and that's a view that's endorsed by some historians. However, historian Thomas Slaughter, who wrote uh, The Whiskey Rebellion, Frontier Epilogue to the American Revolution by Oxford Uni University Press, published in 1986, citation, I don't know. You want to give like the that. full like number that's cataloged? Just, yeah, just it's the more, ISBN you know, is... Uh, you know, no, please stop. Please um, stop. <laughs> Thomas Slaughter argues that a conspiracy of that sort is difficult to document. So we don't know whether Hamilton actually was trying to push the little guy out of business. 
I would not put it past him. But whether it was by design or not, large distillers recognized the advantage that the excise gave them, and they heartily supported it. Now, likely Hamilton wasn't malicious, right? Yeah. He was. He really thought that what he was doing was in the public interest of the country. He was just trying to promote big industry because that's how he wanted to turn America into an economic powerhouse. Yeah, and I mean, he did do that. Like, Arguably, he did a good job. <laughs> Arguably, yeah. he did do that, yeah. But anyway, speaking of like big distilleries and Hamilton's friends, this is another little-known historical fact, but George Washington... <laughs> the man who's literally deified in the United States. Like, there's a picture in the Capitol. I don't know if you knew this. There's a picture of the, it's called the apotheosis of George Washington. Mm-hmm. It's George Washington enthroned in the heavens among the angels. So, like, this man whom we worship, uh, and I think that's probably fine. He was he was pretty okay. But um, he was, around the time of the Whiskey Rebellion, the single largest whiskey distiller in the United States. Um, in fact, his whiskey distillery located in Mount Vernon was massive by the standards of the time. It took up 2,250 square feet with the average distillery at the time being a mere 800 square feet. So it was like more than twice the size, considerably more than twice the size of the average distillery. And it operated five copper pot stills a month for 12 months out of the year when the average distillery used one or two and distilled for one month. He was producing almost 11,000 gallons of whiskey, which was worth about $7,500 or about $120,000 in today's money. So what you're saying is he's just using this law to knock out the competition. Well, sort of, except that he didn't actually start producing whiskey at Mount Vernon until 1797, which was about three years after the Whiskey Rebellion was suppressed. But... um, he still operated his distillery for about five years under the favorable tax laws he himself had signed into into what it, how do you say it signed into effect yeah and um so he's just playing that long game basically. i i do think that it's possible i mean i don't think you can like blame the guy for being like hey we signed this whiskey tax and now this is more of a texas thing we signed this whiskey tax and now i'm going to make money off of it you actually some, somewhere like south carolina yeah that might be like too like much frank, frank underwood, underwood. Yeah. yeah um but actually, Washington wasn't even like sold on the idea of whiskey distilling. It was his Scottish farm manager who convinced him to do it and said, like, George, we can make all kinds of money off of this. <laughs> but Washington eventually was like, okay, fine, let's try it. Built this big-ass whiskey distillery, and actually it turned out to be one of Mount Vernon's more profitable enterprises um, and made him a lot of money. Uh, until the whiskey tax was phased out in 1802 by the Jefferson administration, which felt taxes on internal products were unacceptable and unconstitutional, maybe? Not sure. Um, Jefferson, though, we do know, was not a fan of taxes on people's internally produced products. Um, He was much more a fan of of import taxes, which aren't great either, but it is what it is. Let's uh, break from this riveting discussion of tax policy <laughs> and um, talk about the actual uh, rebellion. Yeah. So uh, when the federal tax collectors, uh, they started trying to collect this like whiskey tax from these smaller distiller- distillers in the Western PA, um, the Western Pennsylvanians were not super thrilled about it. Um, some of these uh, tax collectors were actually like tarred and feathered, <laughs> which like I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily have like the right conception of that because it sounds like kind of funny, kind of silly. Like that's that's death. Like you were like 
They're probably probably dead. You like, could you survive, but you were probably gonna die. Like you well, were covered in like boiling tar and historians, then feathers. Historians actually disagree about what is meant when we say tarred and feathered. Like it was not pleasant, but like they're not sure whether they actually like poured like road tar, like tar tar on people and then doused them in feathers, or whether it was just like pitch from. Yeah, Which Tartar. would be Tartar. That was like the worst Tartar. character. Yeah, the worst. In, uh, <laughs> I hated that guy. Tartar. The worst sauce for everything other than fish. Um, <laughs> Tartar sauce. Ayo. No, but there is some debate over like whether tar and feathering would actually kill people. Some people think it would. Some people, and there may they may have done it like a couple different ways. Either way, not not pleasant in the least. It was certainly hot, probably boiling, so, probably anyways. not great for your skin. Because of these like violent attacks, um, the tax was actually like uncollected between uh, ninety one and ninety two. Uh, so eventually, like this, like the violence and the threats, um, it kind of spread just from like the tax collectors themselves to like anyone who just like complied or sheltered them. Um, and these conventions of local leaders were held in Pittsburgh, and a formal opposition to the tax uh, began to coalesce. Um, so they raised these things called liberty poles. Um, yeah, we don't we don't really remember liberty poles, but like, if you know your early American history, liberty poles were they were just poles with a with a hat called a Phrygian cap on them that people who like wanted to say f u to the British would put these poles up in their like front yards during the American Revolution, and it was like a international symbol of like resistance to tyranny, um, and this was like a thing that happened a lot during the American Revolution. And so people were putting these up in their yards in Pittsburgh, and Alexander Hamilton was like, "Hell nah! <laughs> like they can't do that. That's that's so offensive to me." But like today, to me, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Like, oh, somebody put a hat on top of a like stick, <laughs> ooh. But at the time, it was like a, a major diss. But yeah, I mean, if you're comparing like this new government to the, you know, to the, the government one. that you just like spent you know years fighting a war to like throw off. Like that's that's a pretty big insult. Yeah, um, especially since Hamilton played a huge role in the American Revolution. Yeah, at least we think, according to the musical, that's what Hamilton the musical would have you believe. <laughs> so, I mean, it's basically saying like, hey, you know those guys like you just fought to overthrow, you're just as bad as them, um, which was burn. true. Um, but Hamilton didn't want to hear that, and he and Washington especially didn't like that this resistance was happening in Pennsylvania, because at the time. The United States Capitol was in Philadelphia. This was before Washington, D.C. was even a thing. It was still a swamp. Well, it still is a swamp, but it was more of a swamp at the time than it is now. Well, I don't know. I mean, metaphorically, it's still very much a swamp, but at the time, it was literally a swamp. And uh, this was before they literally drained the swamp. Drained, yeah. <laughs> uh I don't know if they're going to figuratively drain the swamp either, but we don't want to get into modern politics here. Not yet. Um, anyway, so Philly was the capital at the time. Washington and Hamilton were both like, what the heck? We can't even control the people in our own state where our capital is. On his own initiative, as was mostly the case during his time as Washington's right-hand man slash like Grima Wormtongue whispering in the ear of an old infirm King Theoden, um, <laughs> on his own initiative, Hamilton drafted a presidential... I saw that as a meme once. That's why I remember that. On his own initiative, Hamilton drafted a presidential pro proclamation uh, denouncing resistance to the excise tax, and he submitted it to Attorney General Randolph, who toned it down 
some of the language. Hamilton is well remembered as being a bit of a firebrand. Uh, and so this Randolph, who was attorney general at the time, said, no, you can't say all of those words to them. <laughs> That'll make it worse. Toned down some of the language. Washington signed the proclamation uh, in September of 1792, September 15th, and they published it as a broadside and they printed it in, in many newspapers. Which what's, is a, What's a broadside, Drew? A broadside, it was like a like a public proclamation, um, kind of like a, a pamphlet kind of thing. Um, I think. I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on that. Once again, not a historian, just a whiskey enthusiast. Uh, <laughs> I actually don't even yeah. like I don't hey, even like whiskey. We, we've had this argument several times. You don't even like whiskey. I don't really like whiskey. You don't like whiskey? And this not. podcast was your idea. Well, I didn't want to talk expressly about whiskey, but I wanted to. T- I figured the whiskey. I wanted to talk about the whiskey rebellion. Do you have to like whiskey to talk about rebellions? <laughs> Do you have to. I don't know. I'm more of a beer guy. Anyway, so um, we, we can talk about the next episode. Yeah, that's. We may end up talking about beer next time. Prohibition. That's yeah, and prohibition. That's a good one. But um, it's crazy to me. That at that time, what the government did when it didn't like what someone was doing, like someone was starting an actual rebellion, they were like, hey, guys, I'm going to publish like a letter to the editor. <laughs> like, can you stop, please? Like, they were very polite about, hey, please pay your taxes. Um, maybe because it was the first tax they were ever expecting anyone to pay. And it was kind of a big deal for these people. But Well, I mean, it's really not like that different like from like modern day. Like if they want to get a message out now – like they go on like the like kind of the news network. They, tweet they have it. their representatives, <laughs> or maybe they have you know their their press their, people their talking. Tiny finger president a, sends a tweet on you know on CNN on Fox. Like this is just <laughs> this is just you know 1700s Fox. That's true. Yeah. Although the big difference between now and then is that we've had you know like 125 years of proof that the government will come after you That's if true. you don't pay yeah. your taxes. There's These a, guys didn't really know what the Washington was going to do. Yeah, there was a question of like whether the government would actually end up enforcing its its tax. And they did, um, because when the newspaper thing didn't work, uh, and when, when other attempts at reasoning with the rebels were unsuccessful, Washington himself took command of a militia force that marched across all of Pennsylvania to disperse these rebels. And it was actually the first and last time that the commander-in-chief actually commanded and, and chiefed while in command of the chieftain. Um, so Washington got on a horse yes. as president yes, and commanded out. an army. That was supposed to be in the Hamilton musical, and in the early drafts of the Hamilton musical it was, but they cut it for uh, the One Last Time song, which is my favorite Hamilton song, by the way. Um, I guess that's okay. But the original one was, was addressing the Whiskey Rebellion. But <laughs> yeah, Washington got on a horse and went to command these militiamen. It, they did successfully disperse the rebels. A few ringleaders were arrested in the aftermath, but Washington pardoned them in a show of magnanimity like a like the good dude that he was and even after the rebellion was put down though like a lot of people still didn't pay the tax many small distillers like continued to evade the tax uh, and that made collection difficult and the tax eventually was repealed by jefferson in 1802 it wasn't just like a pennsylvania thing though right right um so like a lot of older accounts of the whiskey rebellion kind of showed it as being confined to like western pa but there's actually opposition uh, to the tax in like the western counties of pretty much every other state in Appalachia. So you've got like Maryland, Virginia, like North and South Carolina, and Georgia, like all involved to some extent. Um, and, like the tax went uh, completely uncollected throughout, pretty much completely uncollected throughout, like the like the frontier state of Kentucky, 
um, and like nobody could be convinced to go out there like and enforce the law or prosecute invaders, which like really shows like how weak the federal government was yeah. in the early days of the founding. They literally couldn't find people to go out and enforce their laws, and I, you've got to think like to some extent that was probably intentional, um, in in the founders just because you know like they just come out from a very strong central government Mm. and they very much tended towards decentralization you know maybe they maybe they got a little bit too decentralized early on maybe not with the articles of confederation yeah oh the articles certainly they couldn't even legally collect taxes at all with the articles of confederation and they learned from that mistake and by the time the constitution was being ratified there was more of a desire for a government that actually could effectively collect taxes and raise armies and that kind of thing. But the average people in the United States, the ones who weren't at the congressional, you know, sort of delegations uh, at the Constitutional Convention, were still extremely skeptical about the power of a centralized government and broadly wanted to be left alone. You see that even with like the uh, anti-federalist papers. There was a, a pretty successful movement um, not successful, but a pretty significant movement in the United States to not ratify the Constitution because people felt it was going to make the government too strong. In hindsight, the anti-federalists probably were were right. <laughs> um, everything they prophesied would happen did happen, and the federal government got huge, and, and uh, it got huge real quick, as the Whiskey Rebellion shows. Like, Washington said... You know what? You can't evade your taxes. We, we, you know, we said we were going to collect this tax. We're going to come. We're going to kill you or arrest you if you don't. So, it, it is still funny though that even though they were successful at collecting the tax in PA, like they knew if they tried this this bullshit with the people in Kentucky, they were just straight up going to get killed. Like they couldn't get people to go out there and try to collect the taxes. I think the background of the Whiskey Rebellion shows some very interesting contrasts with the way that our government works now. And I think I think that's worth discussing, because it is it does it is a clear sort of there are distinctions that can be drawn. Yeah, for sure. I mean, alcohol consumption in the United States has always been kind of a a thorny issue, um, something that people have always disagreed about, um, whether it's religious or other kind of concerns about uh, the consumption of alcohol. Um, we've kind of tried to solve this problem in a lot of different ways. Um, so one reason that Hamilton proposed the whiskey excise tax in the first place was as a sin tax to discourage consumption. Alcohol clearly does have detrimental effects on on certain people, and especially people that are alcoholics that can, you know, cause problems with their families and and with their communities. Yeah, and it was an even bigger problem than it is now in the 1790s. I don't think we really remember uh, as a society how how bad alcoholism often was in in rural communities in Appalachia. And it still is pretty bad in some of these places. And that's one thing that's hard for, you know, libertarians like us to talk about sometimes is accepting that there are negative consequences to people's behavior. We, you know, yeah. we always want to talk about negative things come from the government and therefore we shouldn't be regulating any of this stuff. But, you know, we also have to accept that there are harms that can come come about by people exercising their freedom. And we have to consider the consequences of those. Yeah. Now, whether excise taxes or regulations are really the answer to that that's another discussion but i don't think that we should be you know ignoring the costs of these kinds of behaviors i, mean, I think to some extent like 
just like knowledge and information kind of kind of help solve that problem. I mean, you know, back in the 1790s, like nobody knows what like liver failure is. Probably. That's true. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, like now, like we have a better understanding of like the risks of like chronic alcoholism, which you know, to be fair, like certainly does not like 100% solve the problem. Like there are yeah. still plenty of people that know the risks and just don't care. Yeah, it's not like in the time of Washington, the term cirrhosis of the liver like meant anything to anybody, even if that was what they called it. But like you're right, like just knowing the risks doesn't solve that problem but it i personally believe that as long as costs are internalized to you and they're not externalized to the people around you you should be able to do pretty much anything you want with yourself or your property but the minute the thing you're doing starts to hurt other people then there's a problem um and that was i think sort of the the feeling of the founding fathers many of them were much more moralistic though and felt that alcohol was a problem Washington himself was in favor of moderation but also recognized that it had a huge cultural impact was a drinker himself you know distilled the stuff on his on his farm well plantation um, but you know made sure during the revolution that there was always booze for this for the soldiers because it was important to keep morale up um, so there were people who were advocating like a middle way but Hamilton definitely did intend historians believe he did intend it to be a, a tax to try and reduce consumption as well um, and there were other reasons like revenue uh, because the federal government had recently undertaken a lot of debt from the states um, and needed money but towards the end it became clear that Hamilton wasn't in it merely for the revenue and was more interested in the tax as a method of enforcing social discipline uh, that's according to S.E. Morrison in the Oxford History of the U.S. The Whiskey Rebellion was probably the first example of the government attempting to curb alcoholism through restrictive laws, and that tendency in America ultimately led to prohibition, uh, total prohibition of alcohol, which is could be and probably will be another episode all on its own. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, even once that was repealed, that repealed like, that's continued like through today to some extent, the attempt to control uh, alcohol consumption. You know, we have a lot of, like, states that still have, like— uh, pretty strict regulation um, like Pennsylvania yeah mm -hmm. Pennsylvania still has an awful Pennsylvania liquor control board very corrupt and uh, the, the state and the national level I mean earlier in the episode John was talking about uh, ATF's laws about uh, what you can call bourbon which you know as a side note like the beer of alcohol tobacco and firearms sounds like an amazing place to work if you don't know what it is <laughs> but then when you find out that it's you know regulating all those things you're just a narc <laughs> you're just a narc so not as much fun a narc that sometimes gets to fire machine guns you know, what's really interesting, too, is that, like, some of these laws have just been repealed recently. Yeah. So you've had blue laws, which are laws that govern whether you can sell certain things on Sundays, uh, which historically had a very religious context. A lot of these laws were repealed, like, early 2000s really? or even as late as the, no, 2010. Like, well, there was. Really? Yes, there were laws even in D.C. that wasn't repealed in 2012. But it couldn't have been enforced. Probably not enforced. That's but they were on the books. On the books. Yeah. But they were on the books. There's still a ton of crazy laws out There's there. There's a lot of crazy yeah. laws. Especially at the state level. Yeah. States have made it. I, I can't think of any specifics off the top. I think it, I'm not sure whether it's Georgia or whatever that, like, you can't kiss in, like, a parked car or something. At least like, a lot of stuff like that. Or, like, you can't have a dog that has fur longer than three inches or something. Like, it's never enforceable. That second one is almost certainly not true. But, like, it's never they're never enforceable but they're just laws that people make like just because they have like a personal pet peeve against like long-haired dogs that kind of thing um <laughs> yeah and you see you, you see these laws pop up in states all the time yeah and i think we can you know 
kind of transition into talking about how these kind of things can happen when people rise up about certain things. Yeah. Um, people can... They get real pissed off about certain things. They can get things. pissed off about stuff, yeah. And it's not like populism is a new phenomenon, you know. Like, the Whiskey Rebellion shows that because it really grew from the outrage of, like, a genuinely aggrieved group into a, a broader series of riots and a backlash against the rich. Like members of this rebellion eventually wanted to just march into Pittsburgh and, like, loot the homes of the wealthy before burning them to the ground which isn't constructive, um, but it became about much more than just the whiskey. It was about sort of the aggression and the simmering discontent of a neglected population, which made political violence seem like their only option. Because at this time, it's important to know the historical context, too, around what was happening in the western parts of Pennsylvania. The United States was in a war with several Indian confederations, which was called Little Turtles War, or as the Americans know it, the Northwest Indian War. It was not going great, for America right around the time of the Whiskey Rebellion. And at the time, Spain had forbidden Americans from using the Mississippi River for trade. So in places like Kentucky that bordered up along the Mississippi, there was this huge like problem that they couldn't use the Mississippi for trade, and they felt that was deeply unjust, and Congress wasn't doing anything about it, and they felt very underrepresented. And they felt like Congress wasn't interested in their, in, in their problems. Uh, and I think this has interesting parallels to the modern world. Lots of good research, including some about the causes of terrorism, actually, that I've read by uh, Dr. James Piazza at Penn State, suggests that political violence occurs mostly in places where a population isn't well represented by their government. So another connection that I kind of see here is, you know, we talk about income, income inequality a lot, right? Yeah. And it's something that people on the left tend to care about a lot more, you know, than people on the right or libertarians. We I mean, I care about it, just not as much as I care about it. Yeah, I mean, I think people care about it, but they kind of seem to, at least a lot of, a lot of you know, right, more right-leaning people that I know tend to shrug it off and like, yeah, think, you know, that's I a th thing, that's a thing we need to, to worry about to maybe, our detriment, but probably, we should probably but. push it off. But I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, is that it's not about absolute poverty for the, like, for people a lot of the time. You know, even, even as incomes rise across the board, if you are poorer than someone else, or you feel like you are being oppressed or disenfranchised, even if you're not, which a lot of these people might be, but even if you're not, you have this sense of discontent. Yeah, it's about the and that economy. can cause civil unrest, and that can be bad for your society and for your civilization. And I, I think that's something that we neglect a lot of the time to our own detriment. Yeah, I think it's less about poverty and more about whether or not people feel they have legal avenues available to affect political change. Again, populations which feel unrepresented, political violence begins to seem like an acceptable answer to their problems. And this one, you know, this one cause, this is what James Piazza talks about, but this one cause might not be the primary factor in every example of political violence, but it's certainly a believable theory. Um, and it may well have contributed to the outbreak of, of the Whiskey Rebellion in particular. Yeah, and I mean, we're definitely like seeing like a rise of in that kind of populist sentiment right now. And like, yeah. thankfully it hasn't really escalated to the level of political violence. I mean, there have been some there small been things like here and there, some riots certainly. Um, but yeah, like there's a lot of like unrest really like, on both sides of the aisle of mm -hmm. people feeling that like they are not represented and not cared about in our society. And I, I mean, it really is just just a powder keg that yeah, certainly could turn even more violent. It's going to get worse before it gets better, too. That's 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 your oracle for the day, people. <laughs> and so speaking of political violence, uh, 
the government, you know, uses violence to enforce its laws. That's kind of what governments that do. That is what a government That's is. what governments do. Monopoly but it's really interesting the way that the military was used in the Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah. I mean, it is really interesting because, like, we talk about, like, the militarization of the police right now, um, which is certainly an issue. But, like, back then, there was a, uh, like, literal military uh, enforcement laws. Was, I mean, the, like, the army that Washington led across Pennsylvania to disperse these rebels was about 13,000 strong, which was actually the same size of the army that he was leading uh, during the Revolutionary War. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the force that he was using against this some you know, farmers against some farmers <laughs> some was the same farmers. size as like well, not, well yeah at this point like a massive empire's army yeah like that is kind of bonkers and it was a pretty large compared to like the threat presented by the whiskey rebellion um and it was basically just kind of a show of power like he wanted to show that the federal government meant business and it was going to enforce its laws through violence if necessary so like by comparison the legion of the united states which is america's like effectively america's standing army army it numbered only around 5,000. And, like, the Legion was fighting an actual war against um, several, like, very determined and well-armed uh, Native American tribes around this time. So his militia army of 13,000, it was bigger than the actual army that was fighting a war at, at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, like, this habit of using the combination of taxation and military force in order to, like, insp- uh, uh, impose like specific behavioral norms is you know kind of the hallmark of the modern state and so it was around that time that the governments uh set up by the founders has first started kind of stretching its muscles and kind of trying to prove its own staying power like we said before like there was a lot of uncertainty about the the kind of strength and sort of like central power of this government and this is kind of their way of saying like yeah we're we've got enough strength to like make you do what we say yeah we're gonna bring down an entire army on your ass if you don't pay your taxes like just think about think about that the, those numbers. Like the actual army was just five thousand dudes fighting some some fighting in Little Turtles War at the time, and um, I, I just think Little Turtles War is just like great the name. greatest name for a war. Um, but I'm totally picturing like an army of like little very turtles. little turtles, yeah, with with muskets. <laughs> but are they like horse sized turtles or, or like turtle sized horses? <laughs> Uh, they were they were horse sized turtles, I think. Um, but no, that the Legion of the of the United States was only five thousand people, right? No, they were trained. They were a standing army, but still only five thousand. Washington raised an army of of more than double that number just to go and put down some like tax evaders in 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 Pittsburgh. But That's if we're gonna crazy. if we're going to draw some contrast between now and then, yeah, I think it's interesting to look at like legally how Washington had to do that, right? So. Washington actually had to wait for approval from a Supreme Court justice before he could even muster up this militia of yeah, 13,000 people. I mean, yeah, he had to wait for a Supreme Court justice to say that the Western Pennsylvania region was actually in rebellion. Yeah, I mean, imagine yeah. if every time that someone violated an environmental regulation, the EPA had to go to, you know, Justice Roberts and say, like, hey, can we uh, find these people or can we go after them? That'd be crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, like, we crazy. can't even imagine that kind of restraint on federal power now yeah it's the rise of the administrative state it makes everything well you know this is intentional right like around the time of uh woodrow wilson worst president ever fun fact that should be like on Ob- his, objectively on fact. just objectively one of the most racist um <laughs> if not the most racist of all presidents other than probably andrew jackson but woodrow wilson intentionally wanted the government to be way better at doing stuff like Josh said, the the founders were skeptical about whether the government should be good at stuff. Like it's interesting that at the time of the Whiskey Rebellion, the taxation infrastructure in the U.S. was was completely underdeveloped, undeveloped. 
basically. I mean, tax collectors had to fear beatings at the hands of their of their targets. Like it required an army of thirteen thousand people to enforce the taxation regime in Western PA, and even afterwards, many distillers just didn't pay the tax. They they evaded it. Like today, the worst the IRS has to deal with is like disgruntled taxpayers spreading mustard on their checks. Like so. I'm sorry. Is is that a thing that's happening right now? Yeah, that's uh, John Oliver. Um, Last week tonight did a, a segment on the IRS where he, there's an interview with an IRS guy who says sometimes people spread mustard on the checks. We just wipe it off and send it to the bank. <laughs> like that's well now I know how I'm doing my taxes. Yeah, I do mine through uh, H&R blocks. So yeah, I don't think there's any paper. There's no paper involved no when paper I do my taxes. In my taxes anymore. But it, it's crazy to think now we have a bureau that just does that. That just takes our money from us, and we don't even you know. We don't care. It's it's become routine to us. I mean, some of us care, but you know, our well, care, we care but, our yeah. our care extends no farther than Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, which which I think does bring an interesting contrast between another contrast, you know, between today and what happened in the Whiskey Rebellion. I think if today and we we I mean, you can show evidence of this that the government increases taxes on people all the time, taxes that might be regressive or unfair. People aren't taking arms, taking up arms against the federal government. I mean, part of that is because, you know, like consider how quickly a, a violent protest like the Whiskey Rebellion would be quashed today. Uh, some of that is because of police militarization, but like how unlikely it would be to even occur in the first place. Like it's ironic that we now are, broadly speaking, worse represented by the federal government and more onerously taxed than the Whiskey, Rebe- whiskey Rebels were, but we simply take it as like an inevitable cost of living in america like it's crazy how much more we've come to accept the intrusion of government into our daily lives and accept the government's right to tax us without any protest but you know they changed the constitution they can do that now and at the time the people just like let it happen so there may be something to said for the voting laws yeah right so like the a lot of the farmers around the time of the whiskey rebellion were legally barred from voting because there were a lot of voting requirements at that time, property you know, you had yeah. to be own property, you had to be male, you had to be all these different things that a lot, a lot of these poor people didn't qualify for. They didn't satisfy these requirements of voting. Um, and so they were literally like legally disenfranchised. Um, they felt that their only recourse to create political change was in a second violent, violent re- rebellion and first against the British and then against their very own government. One that they felt was consistent with the principles of the original American Revolution. Um, no taxation without representation. They couldn't vote. They shouldn't be taxed. And that is like a crucial like element that, that the whiskey rebels felt they were in the right, given the principles upon which many of probably many of those same people, some of them I think even were veterans, had had fought a, a revolution. They had been told, you know, we're fighting the British because they're taxing us without representation, and that there were a bunch of other reasons too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because like we really take voting rights for granted right now. We do. Um, yeah. We've had we've only had like full voting rights for you know most of the entire population for not even a hundred years really. I mean, yeah. It's less than half of like our country's history. I mean today like most Americans you know except for felons have like the legal right to vote and change the policies that they have a problem with. Um, so there's at least like the appearance of recourse like even you know if in practice you know your individual vote doesn't actually change anything. But, you know, on the other hand, like back then, you know, when you've got entire groups being excluded from voting, like that definitely changes things. I think James Piazza's right. Like, that's why the Whiskey Rebels rose up is because they they didn't have representation. They didn't have a legal avenue to change things. And today we're seeing, I think, similar people rising up because they feel they don't 
have the recourse. They feel that, that the vote has been denied them through voter suppression and through like a, a systematic course of, of uh, oppression. And, you know, maybe they're right. In some yeah, I mean, you definitely see that in the people that voted for Trump and his supporters is that they recognize you. Sure, they can show up to the polls. They can vote for their congressmen and their senators, but they're not really being represented by those people. They don't feel that Washington is doing things that's really in their interest. And Washington is not. And they're not. Yeah. And so what they did was they rose up against this kind of this kind of disenfranchisement and they voted for someone that they thought could bring about that kind of change. And maybe he can, maybe he can't. I mean, I I don't I want to like avoid talking about current politics because it's so polarizing, but for the record, I don't think he can. I I I think like everyone that ever votes for anyone who makes them a promise, they're going to be very disappointed when they find out that they can't you know the person can't keep those promises but that's politics yeah it's powerful people making promises that they can't keep to people who are desperate for those promises to be to be kept i I think that's it's it's a it's a farce really but it's universal i I don't think there's ever been like any elected official that has kept every single promise that they made like james k polk the only president who kept every single one of his campaign was it because he made no campaign it was because he made three okay (laughs) so and they were you know pretty easy but he's the only i think to this date, the only president that's kept every one of his campaign promises. So it's not impossible. You just have to have very limited ambitions, and that doesn't tend to get people riled up, which is why Polk was a one-term president. Also, he accomplished everything he wanted to do, so he was just like, ah, I peace, I'm done. But you don't see that anymore, you know, because now everybody wants to do the, we're going to change the world. We're going to save you from all your problems, and people are desperate for hope, and so they believe it. Yeah, well, we we really ended on a depressing note. But uh, you know, the government is depressing. Yeah, it is. It is kind of sad when you think about we are confronted now with a similar sort of lack of accountability from our government uh, that, that the whiskey rebels had, except the problem now is like de facto rather than than just legal. Like it's we have the legal right to vote. It's just that right doesn't really mean anything. Uh, I think I mean, I'm probably a little pessimistic. Yes, we are. We promise we will have more optimistic conversations in the future about say german beer purity laws uh <laughs> i mean they do make good beer so they maybe really good beer. maybe there's They're, something that's there. a very it's a fascinating conversation um about the reinheitsgebot especially but that's the german beer purity law there's a lot to be talked about on, in terms of that and people actually in germany people love that law that's a conversation that i think is fascinating because the germans are like hey we actually we love this regulation it it means our beer is good like there's a question of whether they actually like are fully aware of what their beer would be like without the law, but um, yeah. but that's something we'll talk about next time. Yeah, right? sometimes not all regulations are bad. Maybe not. I I mean I think they are all bad. But uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us on the Whiskey Rebels. I am John Nelson. I'm Andrew Breckville. I'm Josh Evans. Enjoy our podcast responsibly. Oh, sick outro. Oh.